Welcome to Creative Place, the podcast for creative placemakers. I'm your host, Andrea Orlando. Does it seem impossible to have a conversation on politics lately? We caught up with Washington, D.C. social innovator, Philippa Hughes, to learn more about her nationwide project, Looking for America. The assignment took her across the country to incorporate art, food, and guidelines to encourage healthy political discussion. Our chat was part of a series called Community Coffee Talk, which is intended to find out how creative placemaking work is shifting during the pandemic. We recorded this live interactive video conference in May of 2020 with co-host Megan Ritigliano, founder of Globally Curated and Burning Man Cultural Ambassador. I curated an art show called A Good American at a a museum here in DC and invited 50 people to experience the art, experience the artists, and to talk to each other. And and, and and, and when the the 50 people were like from across the political spectrum, that that just made it so much more interesting because it really showed all the different nuances around how we talk about politics. It's not binary, it's not just left versus right. And it was just so interesting. And a guy came to that dinner from an organization called New American Economy, Dan Wallace. And he, he had been trying to think about ways to use arts and culture to talk about immigration, one of the most divisive issues in our country. And so that's how we cooked up this idea. Uh, get it? We cooked mm. up an idea, huh? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> to create this project called Looking for America, where we would go around the country and we would curate art shows with local artists answering this question, what does it mean to be American in your community? And then organize these big dinners with sort of semi-guided conversation. Uh, I I don't don't mean semi, but you know, very lightly guided because I was really trying to create the sense of we're still at a dinner party. We're still enjoying each other's company on a human level. And so we did that. It was, I mean, it was just really one of, for me personally, the most fulfilling thing I've ever done professionally. And so um, now, you know, we went through this whole process, kind of call it phase one, and now we're kind of in phase two, figuring out, you know, what's next? How do we keep, one, how do we keep bringing people together in the time of not being able to get together? But also, like, how do we step it up? How do we scale up while still maintaining the sense of intimacy? We have to, we, it has to be very intimate. So anyway, so that's what we're working on now. Mm-hmm. And so what is your theory of change around depolarization? Well, you know, this is so, it, it, the other interesting thing about like not having started out as doing this as a project, like as, is, is that I've just learned so much in the last three years. And so I have had to develop this, this idea, this theory over time, but it's something that I think I, I think I knew at, at my gut level and at my gut level, I feel like I understood that the basis for all change is relationships. How do we have better relationships? And so I, that's, that's how I think about every aspect of this project and how we design each experience is relationship building. And so without, and, 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 and I guess at the core of that is the idea that without relationships, we can't, we can't survive as a species, as our humanity will die uh, without relationships. We can't survive alone. And so that, that's, 
the crux, the, the thrust of, of where I'm moving with this project. And so why do people need to see each other? Why do you think people need to see each other face-to-face as opposed to on Twitter or other social media platforms or anything else that's not face-to-face? Before I say what I, you know, the answer to that, I mean, I will say that, like, I love social media. I don't, I am not a social media basher at all. I think it's an awesome tool when used for good and not evil, and that it's a way to get to face-to-face. If you're only ever on social media or even in this medium, then I don't, I don't think that's a, you know, that's not very effective. It has to be a tool to get to an actual face-to-face interaction. But I do, I just deeply believe that we have to be in the same room. We have to be able to see each other. And, you know, we're seeing each other now, but there's some, there's like this little element of that's missing that is kind of related to this idea of nuance. Like there's a lot of unspoken dialogue that happens that you just can't pick up through a screen. And like just those little, like little nuancey things that are very hard to put my finger on, but I feel it. And I think we all feel it. Like when we are in the same room with somebody having a conversation, it's much different feeling. And so I want and, to, and that's what I think a lot about like how people, what, what, what are the feelings we're trying to create and, and pull out of people? And that's, you know, that's a good segue into what role does art play in eliciting good conversations? Great question, Andrea. <laughs> well, okay. I kind of have to back up. And I love that Terry is on the call too, because you know, we, we know each other through the art world. I've been to those dinners. Yep, and we go, we go back a long way in the art world. And I love art, like you can see. Like I love art objects. I like collecting art. I like being around artists. Um, but I've kind of a, a little bit evolved in my thinking around the power of art. The power of art, art in itself is zero. It's, it's just materials. And the way I feel like what I'm trying to do is like, I'm still kind of like working out my thoughts on this. um, But this is going to just sound crazy to art people, I think, or or, or like terrible, but I'm trying to deobjectify the idea of art and think about it as a means to learning about yourself. The object itself is worthless. But if it can be used as a way to reflect back on yourself as a person and who you are, that's where the value is, not in the, in the materials themselves. And so, when, so that's why I've been thinking about uh, when we use art in the conversations that we're organizing, I want to figure out a way to re- use those things to reflect back and to help people not only see themselves in the works of art or through the art, but also to see others in a more curious way. And curiosity is also at the root of this idea of change. If we're not curious about each other, we can't form relationships. And so how do we spark curiosity? Art is an excellent way to do that. Yeah. So what, what is the future of gathering when we can't gather? Yeah. How, how are you shifting your work now or thinking about shifting it? It's really, it's so hard um, for us extroverts, like just at a very personal level, it's been really challenging to, I mean, part of it is I have kind of like starting to read, to discover a little bit of my introversion. I've been enjoying this isolation, but it is in our human nature to gather, to want to be around others. 
So I've been really thinking a lot about like how to manage this, this inability to gather. And, you know, even before we were put into quarantine, I have been thinking about how to use technology to bring people together. Um, when we've done these experiences in the city, in the cities that we went to, you know, all the people who attended were people who were within that community. And it was amazing. But I've also, there's this other layer that I want to, I wanted to figure out because I wanted to show people that, you know, when, as we're exploring this idea of what it means to be American, I want to show people that like, you can be American in so many different ways all around the country. And how do we like, sh how do we share those stories across <laughs> you know, big geographic divides. And so I've been thinking about like, well, maybe I could use, you know, video technology, but I was so resistant to that because as we talked about earlier, like, I don't think it's, I was, I didn't think it was like good enough, but it became, you know, two things have really got me to thinking about, to accelerate the idea of figuring out how to do this. One, pandemic, but two, the more I thought about the different kinds of divides, we have so many different kinds of divides. And one of them is like an urban rural divide. And we're never going to be able to bridge that. I mean, it's just going to be very hard to financially. Like you're, it's hard to bring people together when they live in literally different parts of the country. And so this is what we got. And so I'm kind of trying to lean into this thing that I've been resistant to. And I've, I've been also thinking about eventually we are going to be able to gather again, but I still think it's really important that we continue to experiment with this kind of medium because there are situations where we're not going to actually be able to get together even when we're allowed to get together. And so I think we need to lean into this. So, so have you been, uh, have you yeah. started using video? Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say there's a couple um, topical questions in the chat that I've yeah. captured that I think are good for this moment. Um, so, and I think it was about what you were just going to ask. So Joni's asking, um, have you thought about ways to create virtual gatherings without resorting to the typical Zoom environment? And is that something that you've been mulling over? That is a great question. It is the thing I think about all the time, especially having done tons of creative placemaking projects here in DC and always thinking about place. And how are we gonna, so with the, the way I've been thinking about it is like, how do we create a sense of place in this sort of weird, you know, virtual digital world? And so that's how I've been trying to address this is, you know, there are like little tools and that, that Zoom has. So actually this evening, um, a friend and I are going to experiment with a group, with a group of people we've invited to figure out how do we use all the different tools. But at the end of the day, those are just tools once again. And like, what are we trying to achieve when we're trying to create a sense of place? And so I think that if we can answer that question, that's how we can create this sense of place in this environment. When I've done creative placemaking projects in the real world, you know, I've thought about different things, like different elements of creating a sense of awe and wonder. In fact, I wanna chat about awe and wonder, in fact, for a second because in, in part because that's that's a place that I've done I draw some influence from there's a 
organization called the Greater Good Science Center. They're based out of UC Berkeley. And they have done a lot of work around, a lot of research around how we create a sense of awe and wonder in people. Because when you create sense of awe, you create more connectedness to pe between people. You create more curiosity, which leads to connectedness. And so one of the things that I think about a lot when creating place is how do we create that sense of, whoa, I'm in a place. Like the whoa, the whoa factor, I'll call it. Uh, I, just, I just thought of that. And also, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter what the medium is. It only matters how you connect with each other, that you did connect. So anyway, that is not a very articulate answer, Joni, because I'm still trying to figure it out as we speak, but I am experimenting. And in fact, Andrea, you're about to ask, you know, have, have I been experimenting? And yes, I have. In fact, I've got 12 Zoom chats set up in for the first week of June with people who attended the previous dinners because I wanted to continue those conversations. And what we're, so one of the things that we're doing to create the sense of like connectedness in, with everybody who's going to be on each call is that one of the, or uh, one of the communities that we worked with was in Sioux City, Iowa. And Jiffy Pop is the, one of the big industries in Sioux City. And they have a little subsidiary called Coated Kernels and they make amazing flavored popcorn. And so the woman that I have been working mm. with on the ground Sioux City got a small grant and she wanted to use it for these conversations but she can't spend her money outside of Sioux City so I came up with this idea for her to pay Coda Kernels to ship popcorn to everybody who's going to be on the calls and I, I, I wrote these instructions to say you know don't eat these before we get on the call hopefully they will listen to that because they're really good <laughs> yeah and, uh and Philippa, what is the name of the center in Berkeley that you had mentioned? It's called the Greater Good Science Center. Okay, cool. I'll write that in the chat. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I mean, you know, they're a little bit woo-woo for my taste, but I, I think they're great. They, they're doing, what I like about it is that they're doing science-based research to show, you know, how, how to make connections, why connections are important. It's, you know, it's not about just being happy and getting along. It's, there's science that shows that we have to do this um, in order to build community, in order to make change. I, and I think there's been some science around uh, breaking bread together and eating, eating the same food, although I, I can't cite any studies off the top of my head, but. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely. And, you know, even before science showed it to us, we know that, you know, just from experience, we know that when you break bread with somebody, you feel more connected to them. Like that's just a thing that doesn't, to me, doesn't need science, but it's always nice to have science, um, especially when you're trying to get funding uh, for projects. <laughs> no. <laughs> a, couple yeah. of, uh, a couple other questions in the chat. When you were doing your work in bringing the blueberries and the cherries together, what most surprised you? This is from Tamara. Like what, what did you learn that you didn't notice before? Well, it's not just one thing. I think that I, I learned so much. That's why I'm having, I'm having a hard time answering that question because, you know, I had all these preconceived notions of what those people were like. And so for me personally, it was sort of breaking down this idea that it was like an us versus them. It was, 
because it's actually much more nuanced than that. I keep bringing up that word and network gets thrown around a lot, you know, in a sort of jargony way, but it's really true that there are so many complicated ways that people think about issues. There is, there's rarely an issue that is binary. And even when a person expresses an opinion that absolutely is, is wrong, you know, like sounds, say, racist to us. But I think that when you dig deeper and you ask more questions that get at, you know, what, where did this person come from? How did they come about to having those ideas? Then you can start having a real conversation about racism. But you can, for example, mm. but you can't talk about racism when you're only having like a one-dimensional conversation. You, it is up to us to ask those questions and get at whatever is behind that. Because if we don't, then our, I feel like our opinions on our judgments of people are, well, one, ignorant, but two, just they're, they're useless because they're so one dimensional. Mm -hmm. And just one more question from the chat and then Andrew, I'll turn it back over to you. But uh, I thought that this was timely with what you're saying now, David, from Pittsburgh had asked, have you ever tried this with relatives, this oh, approach, right. who are on opposite sides of the political spectrum and <laughs> live to tell, we'd like to know. <laughs> that is such a great question because the more I got into this project, the more I realized I think I'm doing this because I'm trying to figure out how to talk to my own relatives. Um, I come from a very, very conservative family. And so, you know, we dealt with it by just not talking about politics. Although my mom often tries to needle me by asking me questions that she knows that I'm gonna get riled up about. And so I, so for the first, at least two years of doing this, I could, I still could never talk to my family about politics. It just, I would get too upset. And I have noticed over the past like six months, I have really been able to engage with them because I just see them in such a different light now. And that it, we've had like amazing conversations. So that said, I've been thinking about how hard it took me basically two and a half, three years of intense work to get to the point where I could talk to my family about why my mom thinks we should build a wall <laughs> and she's a refugee. So I, you know, I, I am really sympathetic to others who find this so difficult. I mean, who, who don't have the time, who aren't doing this as their life's passion, as their life's work to learn and figure out how to do this. It's really hard. It's really hard. So that's another challenge for me is how to help accelerate this learning for people because you know most people aren't gonna want to or have the time to commit to this kind of learning and practice it takes a lot of practice um philippa in in our podcast interview uh over a year ago you were telling me about where you're from and how you feel that that shaped your approach to the world yeah um well i mentioned my family, they're very conservative, but probably the more um, salient point from that is that I'm half Vietnamese, half white person. <laughs> I never, I'm, I gotta figure out a better way to describe that too. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, 
and I grew up in you know the American South and so you know in our city our smallish city a suburb of a smaller city my brother and I were the only Asian looking kids in our whole school our whole lives you know it was either white kids or black kids and you kind of almost had to choose a side and so you know, we just didn't fit in. We literally didn't fit in. And so I feel like that sort of dichotomy in my actual person has helped me to be able to go down this path of trying to see other sides. And it has, again, it doesn't make it easy, but it, I think it helps me to at least be open to the possibility that you can have contradictions within the same person, all of us, and that we contain all of these different nuanced ideas and that nothing is binary. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm just kind of taking that in. It's, it's so true. You can also have two feelings about a, a person at the same time. And that's, um, I know that's a space that I live in quite a bit. I talked about this because I mean, it's sort of like my mom, like pretty much all of her political views are, I find, abhorrent, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, you know, this, this, I'm not talking about her behind her back, but she's my mom. Like, mm -hmm. yes. So, yes, I can certainly have multiple feelings when we're interacting with each other. And, and when you've set the context, this is a question from MK from Louisville. Um, when you do set the context or try to create a space for these conversations to happen, do you have ground rules for the discussion? Um, and if so, like, what are they? Um, what helps to stabilize things? Well, I mean, that's a great question. Absolutely. This could not work without some set of ground rules. So I actually created this little booklet, which I'm happy to share. It's still, I'm, I'm still working on it, but I created a little booklet that we would share with each person who came to the dinner and it, within it were, were the ground rules. And there's a lot of ground rules. So I think that's one thing I want to work on is like shortening that up a little bit. But for example, one of the very most important rules is that we're coming into this conversation not to win an argument. I think mm -hmm. a lot of times we come into these things where we're trying to persuade and like tell the person they're wrong. And that is not the purpose. We're here to listen and ask questions and learn and not make judgment. Um, so you're not trying to win is one of the most important ground rules. Another one is to listen with the amount of compassion with which you want to be listened to and not be thinking about what your answer is as you're listening. So, you know, one of the interesting things about that for me is that, like, I'm really into witty banter. Like, you say something and then I say something and, you know, we're like, go back and forth really fast. And so I have felt very awkward with those little pauses that often happen when you get, when you let go of your desire for witty banter and so i really like what you just did andrea like where you just stopped and paused for a moment and just processed because that's what better con we could have better conversations if we actually processed what the other person is saying rather than think about what we're trying to say in response because you know we want to like one-up them in some way or you know something like that anyway so um i do have a whole set of ground rules and i'd be happy to share um, that but i am kind of refining it that now as well. So in fact, I love people's input on it. Mm. Okay, so it's now it's, it's you all. Do you have any suggestions? 
Does anyone have any suggestions? This is a great group of people to ask. So Sherry says, so speaking of po polar opposite, it seems like we are, we are going to have to think about two types of spaces for people, space for those who want to have more distance between them and space for those who happily go against social distancing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sherry, um, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to unmute everybody. Sherry, do you want to go ahead and, and um, talk? Oh, sure. I just, I woke up really early this morning, got on social media, read a whole bunch of news, and, and it really just started settling in for me about, you know, the public space. Our governor in New Mexico has now made it required that everybody wears a face mask in public space. And there's, there's definitely rebels out there. And so it just, I was really thinking about if we're going to be able to do performances outside, does that mean we have to have two stages, you know, a stage for the people who want to wear masks and then a stage for the people who don't want to wear masks? And, you know, are we encouraging rebels? I mean, it just is such a fascinating time to think about two types of public spaces for, for that kind of polar thinking. Well, it's well, I mean, you know, I was thinking, I just read this piece this morning about um, public shaming and how people who wear masks are shaming the people who aren't wearing masks. And then now there's a backlash against the shamers. Like, who are you to tell me that I should be wearing a mask? Like, so, and I think it feels like a lot of that is, comes from confusion. Like we're getting so many different messages we, and it's just not clear. But, you know, that's interesting, Sherry, because, you know, why would we need two stages? If the governor has said you have to wear a mask, why do you need to make an extra, this is my opinion, but why would you need to make an extra stage for some people, the rebels, who don't want to wear a mask? They can do their own stage. I, I, I mean, if, if that's the rule, that's the rule. But I know, I get it. Um, there's, there's a, in the recent Zoom conversation that I did that with the folks from across the country, there was this amazing libertarian guy who was on one of the calls, you know, and he was saying all the things that you expect libertarians to say. And, you know, there was, we should be managing things very locally. We need smaller government, all the things. But, you know, he was saying the federal government's job is to protect its citizens. And we're in a moment when citizens need to be protected. So it was so fascinating to me that this libertarian guy was saying, our federal government needs to step up and protect us. Mm. From wow. the so I think, Sherry, what you're saying, to me, what, what, I, what I'm hearing is there's just confusion about how to address this. And we do need, okay, now I'm getting all political, but we do need leader, leadership to say, you know, we're all in this together and we need to like band together or else a lot of people are gonna die. There's a partial question from Joni Carroll, and it just, it says consequence of not here, adhering to the rules, which I think follows on what you just said, Philippa. But Joni, I, you can unmute yourself now if you'd like to speak and ask, a, ask the question. Okay. Um, it sounds like, I mean, are there, she's, I think she's probably asking like, are there consequences if people don't follow the rules? Is, is that right? Probably. I'll, that's the question I'll answer, and then you can correct okay. me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I mean, the consequences are we have created this environment where everybody has agreed to follow the rules. They're written in this book. I did this thing where I asked people to sign their agreement to the rules. And so other people at the table, for lack of a better word, police the conversation. 
And I tell them like, it's, your, you know, it's, it, I'm giving you these rules so that you can point to it and say, hey, you're not allowing others to speak. You're dominating the conversation. And the rules say you agreed that, the, you know, you're not going to dominate the conversation. So I, I, my goal is to empower others in the conversation to get to make sure that people adhere to the rules and, you know, in a nice, respectful way. Nobody usually, I mean, I, nobody feels attacked by that. They really feel like, usually people react like, oh, right, right, I'm sorry, you know, like that. So I think self-regulation has worked really well. Anybody else? Would anybody like to ask a, a question either in the chat or, or by, by voice? Oh, I noticed Tamara said ground rules can often lead to greater freedom, and I totally agree. I absolutely agree because otherwise it feels like you don't know what to do when, when you're just set free. It's, it's really helpful. Hey, Philippa. So MK is asking, what advice would you give us if we wanted to try this in our own homes post-COVID? Ah, well, that's a great question to to end on actually, because that is the whole goal of this project is to get people to do, do mm. this on their own. And so the little booklet that I mentioned earlier, the goal of refining that booklet is to be able to share that so that people will do it in their own homes. And to, again, like, I feel like once, and it, you know, and also I want to say too that people feel very afraid to do this sort of thing. And I find it interesting. Like you, we often, a lot of people will have dinner parties. You know, I guess what they're, we're afraid of is having people who are different than us. And so when we have a kind of a structure, I think it gets back to this idea of the rules kind of free us in a way. It says, oh, okay, well now it's, I don't have to be, you know, it takes away a thing to be afraid of, uh, mm -hmm. which that fear becomes a barrier to actually doing. So I, I have a lot of thoughts on how you can do it in your home. I want to put this in this booklet. But I think that the first thing is to, to overcome your own fear of the differences in other people and to make, turn that fear into curiosity rather than, um, you know, in, rather than fear. You know what I'm really curious about is when you got people together for the dinner parties in the cities across the country, were people given an assurance of privacy? And, you know, what were the rules around privacy of the conversation, uh, recording, not recording, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, so far we have said no recording. We don't take any video, anything, absolutely, to, to, let, to let people feel like they're free to say what they want to say. That said, I do want to figure out how to capture some of that, uh, maybe some of the essences of what people are saying, because people uh, they just say the most amazing things. But even I, I, I want to be able to share some of the actual things people say, but ultimately what people actually say is not the most important thing about these experiences. The most important thing is that it happened, that we can prove to our fellow Americans that you can get together with people who think differently than you, and you can talk in a very respectful, humanizing way and not want to kill each other. Or maybe you do want to kill each other, but at the end, and still have a great conversation. And so I want to figure out a way to share the experiences in it, to, to convey that message rather than the, the specific content of what is actually said. So um, 
Oh, sorry. There's just a question that I think totally relates from Terry. You mentioned that you don't do recordings, but have you done any other kind of documentation? You've mentioned the booklet, but have there been like photos or sort of takeaway points that you've captured um, along the way? Yeah, I mean, we certainly, we do take photos. Um, so, and there, we have a whole gallery of photos. We've done, oh, oh, I forgot to tell you about like a most important piece of like documentation. So one of the ways we bring people into the conversation is that before they arrive, we ask them to bring an object. And the object can be a song, a recipe, anything that sort of conveys their sense of community at, in their their sense of Americanness in their community and so we begin dinner with storytelling and ask people to tell a story about the object and so that you know that plays a lot of different roles you know we know that storytelling helps us connect with each other but sometimes it's hard to get like super vulnerable and personal when you're telling a story to a table full of strangers and so we we direct that sort of discomfort toward an object and sort of like triangulates away the discomfort and then you know that it just helps helps sort of juice people into being able to get more and more vulnerable so we start with that um, so one of the documentations is that uh, we started doing this about midway through once you know when i figured out an idea around this is that um, i take a we, we take photos of each object and we have an artist draw the object using like digital means. So then that creates like a little video of the object being drawn, you know, from start to finish. And when we can, we record people telling their stories and then superimpose the audio over the little video that was made. And so then we were able, I, I, and that I can share that too as, uh, as well. Then we have this little video of this story that, that people are telling. Some of them are so amazing, just so beautiful, such beautiful stories. So I'm trying to think of more ways to document, you know, through artistic means. Um, we've had poetry documentation. Um, oh, we had this one artist who recorded um, people, again, talking about their American experience, um, their feelings about being American, and he composed I wouldn't call it music, this soundscape um, of people's voices. There was music in it, but it was sort of a soundscape of people's stories and words. Um, also just really beautiful and just a different mode of expression. So a lot of these um, documentations are sort of abstract. But I kind of like that they're abstract because once again, I don't think the specific content is the most important thing. Oh, and you said graphic recording, Terry? Totally, I really want to do that. They're, they're kind of expensive, but I've, it's definitely on my list. That was so much more of an answer than we could have bargained for. I know. I was like, what? Yes, you just I know. Rain, <laughs> 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 yeah, so I mean, so we're, I want to respect everybody's time. Well, first of all, thank you everybody for, uh, for joining us in this. Really, it was, it, this is the pilot. And, and I want to commend Philippa on her bravery. Uh, you were the first <laughs> to agree to do this. And, and it's at a time when we're all trying to figure out what's, you know, what's next. And none of us have answers. So, you know, you're very brave. Thank you. And I, I know that people are going to want to continue this conversation. So I, Philippa, can you guide me on what information I can share with people if they want to continue the conversation with you and continue asking questions 
you know, I can tell everybody that we'll, we always send a follow-up email with links and, and more information because we know you can't get enough. So um, I, I, I really enjoyed this for many reasons, but one is like, I didn't realize people from all over the country would be in, on the, this call. And so I would love to connect with people in other parts of the country because, so we do have a little, we, I did win this nice little grant in March to keep going. So when we can start traveling or, or even maybe with the Zoom chats, I'm organizing these Zoom chats. And so I would love to connect with, especially people who are not in my area to think about how we could connect. You know, maybe we could organize a Zoom chat together with, with people from across the political spectrum. Excellent. Excellent. So everybody on the call, we're going to share, you know, that contact information that you'll be able to use to get in touch with Philippa. And with that, I, I want to mention that we're going to do this again in two weeks at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time and 10 o'clock Pacific Time. And our next conversation is going to be led by Tamara Gatchel, who's with us right now. She's principal at Cadence Creative in upstate New York. And she, our guests are going to be the innovators from O Positive. Dot festival.org. They bring together underinsured artists with medical professionals, and they've been doing this for, for years. So we're going to find out how they're shifting, you know, and, and what issues are coming to the surface for them. So Tamara, <laughs> can I put you on the spot? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm really looking forward um, to, to this. I've got some big shoes to fill after seeing Andrea do this. She's such an excellent facilitator. Uh, but I think O Positive is just really neat. We hear so much from creative placemakers about that intersection between art and well-being and health. And I just think uh, the model that they're using is so neat and they'd like to share and they want to support others who might have an interest in doing what they're doing. So I think it'll be great. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So, so thanks again, everybody. Want to just quickly shout out the members of the, the National Consortium for Creative Placemaking who are in the background recording, taking notes, keeping me on time. <laughs> and so Erica Henderson-Smith, managing director, Leonardo Vasquez, our founding director, program coordinator, Magdalena Mischlevitz, and community building associate, Christine Leslie. And thanks all. Cheers. Let's get some coffee. <laughs> and um, hope to see you back in, in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Fantastic. You're great, Philippa. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You've been listening to Creative Place, produced by the National Consortium for Creative Placemaking. Have an idea for a topic we really should talk about? Contact us. Our handle is CP Communities. Bye for now. Bye.